Hello and welcome to Become an Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school, with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. This week, I am joined by Jade Pierce. Jade is an assistant head teacher with responsibility for teaching and learning at Walton High School. She is a subject expert for initial teacher education, an evidence leading education, and passionate about research, pedagogy, and continuing professional development. You may know her as at Pierce Misses on Twitter, where she shares her excellent staff guides and information about her teaching and learning research group. In this interview, we discuss how Jade has achieved an evidence-informed approach to teaching in her school. We discuss why should teaching and learning be evidence-informed, and we unpick how Jade has introduced an evidence-informed approach to teaching and learning at Walton High School, including how she identified our teaching and learning priorities. We discuss how she tackles getting all staff within her school to engage with research evidence and unpick the teaching and learning research group. We discuss how we use how she uses CPD as an opportunity to encourage engagement in evidence-informed pedagogy and you'll be interested to hear about how staff can buy back some time. We unpack what subject knowledge and pedagogy sessions look like and how often they occur. And we also discuss Jade's school's recruitment process which is which is also evidence informed and what changes they have made in that process to allow candidates applying for their school to demonstrate that they are evidence informed and finally we close with what um, the school has done with students and their parents in explaining the evidence informed approaches they have introduced and Jade outlines what future improvements she would like to focus on to continue this evidence informed journey in her school. It is packed with excellent information and if you're a teaching and learning lead, this is the podcast for you. So without further further ado, let's hear from Jade Pierce. Uh, Jade, thanks so much for joining me on the Becoming Educated podcast today. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. As I said in my introduction, I just loved reading your blog. I love the work that you put out, as do many people do on Twitter. Your, the effort and that you put in and your um, generosity and sharing is, is just wonderful and, and testament to, to the kind of character that you are. So just to kick us off today, Jade um, and Issa Sen, could you share a little bit about you and your career in education to date, please? Yeah, sure. So I work at Walton High School in Stafford. Um, I teach business studies and economics and I'm an assistant head teacher leading on teaching and learning and CPD. This is my 12th year at the school. So I actually did my first PGC placement at Walton and then really never left and just have just stayed since then. Um, so in that time, I've done a range of roles. I was head of year and then head of house and then head of department and then assistant head. And I've been in this post for the last five years. Um, I'm heavily involved in 
initial teacher training. So I've been a mentor for a number of years and I actually don't do that anymore. But now I offer um, a lot of the training to um, trainee teacher cohorts. Um, and all, I also have been a subject expert for um, the Oaks skit. So they do a model where um, each subject has an expert that you spend five day, days with looking at subject-specific pedagogy. So I've always really enjoyed that. Um, I'm an SLE and I've recently been appointed as a evidence lead in education for Staffordshire Research School. That's brilliant. Just for those that maybe don't know, um, a lot of my listeners come from Scotland and we don't really have those evidence leads. Could you just tell us a little bit about what the evidence leads in education do, please? Yes. So it's, it's an amazing role, actually. You link to a research school. Um, so the aim of the research school is to increase the use of evidence-informed pedagogy across schools in the country. Um, my role really is to help them to do that. So to work with individual schools that maybe want to um, help on a specific project or to provide training and also to um, write blogs and that kind of thing. So any way really you can that you, you're trying to get the evidence-informed stuff out there. And that's really what actually led me to starting to share stuff on Twitter and that kind of thing. Uh, certainly, and that's going to lead us nicely into, into today's conversation. So we're going to talk about how you, you're achieving a, an evidence-informed approach to teaching at, at Walting. And um, I think I said that right, Walt, sorry, I think I said Walting rather than Walton. Um, but you wrote a, a lovely blog recently, and we're going to unpick that a little bit for the podcast today. So I want us to start us off asking you, Jade, why should teaching and learning be evidence-informed? Okay, well, I think my PGC was kind of mid-2000s, and anyone who trained or taught around that time will know that it was very much um, lots of practices that when you look back, you think, I can't believe I did those things. And, and I actually feel awful about how much you must have negatively impacted the learning of your pupils at that time. So it was very much pupils have to discover the answer for themselves learning styles and so making sure you've got um, visual, auditory and kinesthetic activities in your lessons. It wasn't a great lesson if you didn't have some Play-Doh or some plasticine in the room, all that kind of thing. So I think, first of all, um, evidence-informed teaching and learning can really help to stop us using those practices which negatively impact the learning of pupils. And then conversely, it helps us to identify those best bets that are most likely to have a positive impact on teaching and learning progress outcomes for pupils. So in terms of teaching and learning, I think that's really important. And then also for our profession, I think it can really reduce workload. We all know that there's been a huge retention crisis in um, teaching, and we know that workload is one of the main reasons that is cited for that. So teaching and learning being evidence-informed can help help with that because it can show us those practices which add massively to workload but don't actually have that much of an impact so for example at my school now we don't require any written marking anymore all of our marking can be um, live or verbal and um, that's come from evidence-informed education also we have um, we don't ask teachers to differentiate by resource or task or anything like that we've removed long written comments from reports and that's really all come from the evidence which has helped us to see that these practices maybe don't have that much of an impact Right, and you've given some a few wonderful examples around about workload, which which you're rightly saying that teacher retention is is in frightening. I, I spoke with Kat Howard last year, and she mentioned something like quarter of a million teachers are qualified in England but don't work. 
which is yeah, frightening. Scary. And a lot of that is due to the, the workload. So the work that you're doing in your school and the examples there are, are truly wonderful. And I love that you mentioned about, we recoil in horror a little bit about what we, the practices we did do. And it always brings me back to a Maya, Maya Angelou quote of, um, when you know better, do better. And it's we're, we're at that time now where we do know better. So it's it's almost a responsibility to do better. So let's let's go a little bit deeper then um, and unpick how you have introduced an evidence-informed approach to teaching and learning. How did you identify your teaching and learning priorities? Um, well, first of all, I think it was just from me becoming more engaged in research myself. So basically, that was lots and lots and lots of reading and going to things like the research ag conferences and all that kind of thing. So getting involved as much as you can with research so that I could develop for myself a list of practices that made up great teaching. So uh, space retrieval practice, explicit instruction, modelling, all those kind of things. So I had a, a nice kind of list in my head, I guess, of the practices that um, I thought would make the biggest impact to teaching and learning. And then from there, it was really about evaluating the current practice at my school and thinking, well, we can't change everything at once. So what are our most important things that we want to change? So, for example, one of our teaching and learning priorities over the last few years has been um, space retrieval practice and really embedding that into all of our teaching and learning. And that that was because at the time um, when we started on this journey, maybe three or four years ago, there was a really heavy emphasis on interventions, revision, cramming. So I could see that we were miles away, basically, from what we would now con consider best practice. So we went with that. And then similarly, um, at the time, a lot of our um, feedback was really heavily written marking and triple impact marking and you writing a comment, which students then respond to you, which you then respond to. Um, so again, I thought, you know, we're miles away from where other schools are now and identified that as a priority. Um, so it was really about kind of evaluating what would make the biggest impact to our teaching and learning and our pupils. Um, and then I think most importantly, we actually have still got those same three teaching and learning priorities now. We all know in teaching and learning, it's really difficult. You have to restrain yourself from wanting to change everything. And you see schools doing such amazing work on Twitter and that kind of thing. And you think, oh, I'd love to do that. And I'd love to do this. But we haven't. We've really resisted that temptation. And I think that's paid dividends in that now, maybe three years on, everything's embedded really nicely. We've been able to refine and improve our practice. And we can now start looking at the next kind of wave priorities that we might want to introduce. Can you share with us, what are those three priorities? So our three current priorities at the moment are um, space retrieval practice, essentially, um, literacy, so improving literacy, and uh, alternatives to written marking, so more effective feedback. Right, I love that focus on, on written marking, because we know that, that marking is, is one of the biggest workload, um, what's the word there, the biggest challenges to our workload yeah. and, and reducing that will really free us up to to think deeply about how we can then embed space retrieval practice and improve the, the literacy outcomes of our young people. So that's a, a brilliant one to add in there. So thank you. Um, can I ask you then, how, how did you tackle getting all staff within your school to engage with the research evidence that you are providing? Well, first of all, I actually had to introduce the idea that teaching and learning could be evidence informed which now seems really weird that it would, wasn't obvious that it could be. Um, but like I said, you know, in my PGC, there was, there was no mention of evidence or research or anything like that. So 
initially it was just saying right there are organizations like the eef like research ed etc that have shown us that actually we can look at research to see what might work best uh, for our pupils um, and then it was about working with the leadership group and we agreed to make evidence-informed education or evidence-informed teaching and learning a whole school priority so that was really cu crucial because it meant that it went in our school development plan it went into department development plans so that got it out there to all staff and then I had to introduce the idea to all of our teachers and um, so we did that in a whole school briefing session where we said there was lots of evidence that we could use and we referred to lots of it so that was books like make it stick and why don't students like school but also um eef reports and, and studies and that kind of thing um, and then it was saying right from from the evidence these are our priorities that's the, the three priorities that we just discussed and then it was really helping staff to start implementing those into their teaching so training coaching the staff guides that i share on twitter and sharing best practice across our school so that was kind of the first stage it was saying these are our whole school priorities they are evidence informed and trying to get everyone to implement those practices into their teaching but then i didn't want people to to only engage with the research that i was kind of saying this is what you you should be doing at the moment and really it was about trying to get them to engage with it themselves so a few things there. First of all, I think one of the biggest barriers to staff engaging with research is time. You know, I'm really lucky that I'm an assistant head. I don't teach a full timetable. So I do have time in my working week to engage with research. Obviously, your standard classroom teacher does not have that luxury. So it was looking at ways to try and um, distill research into a format that teachers could access really easily. So I produce a half-termly teaching and learning newsletter, and um, you'll have probably seen these on my Twitter as well, where I summarise um, maybe a book that I've read, and it's like, instead of, you know, a whole book, it's eight sides, so it's the most important kind of bits that I think, or research papers, um, so that gets a lot of research out to our staff really, really quickly. So I also write staff guides, and this is where we take one of our priority and I summarise the research for that priority. So, for example, we've got one on retrieval practice and it will say this is the summary of the research on retrieval practice and then give lots and lots of examples about how you could maybe implement that into your teaching. I share lots of blogs and resources with our staff. So if I see anything um, good on Twitter or I see a good blog, I might share that with all staff. I do a blog of the week or I might share that just with individuals. If I know they're, they're interested in something or if it's a science blog, for example, I might share that with our science department. We've also got a CPD library. So we've got a lot of teaching and learning books in school. Um, initially, when I started that, actually, it wasn't actually used that much like we've said because probably there's not a lot of time for, for staff to come and read books so the way that I've tried to improve the use of that is to ask teachers like what books do you want have you seen anything that you want and then the school can buy them for you I've also this year invested in quite a lot of subject specific books so wrote to each other department and said these are the list of the books that I would recommend in your department which I which I can get for you but is there anything else that you want as well so that's been really good and, and much more used um, and then we also have a teaching and learning research group. So we meet once every half term to um, read and discuss research. And then finally, we have a teaching and learning inquiry group. So this is similar to the teaching and learning research group in that it's voluntary and that we meet, meet every half term. But this is more, or we identify one priority. So our priority this year is improving boys' attainment because that's been um, an issue in our school. And then we all read some research on that. 
we come come back together and discuss that research um, and then we identify things that we're going to trial in our own, own teaching and it's more about us thinking right has this worked what why has it worked which bit didn't I like in evaluating it as a school so really in terms of getting research out to staff and getting all staff to engage I think it's just having lots and lots and lots of different approaches rather than just one thing that you're doing definitely lots of things that staff can pick you could have staff that might read a book and then try and implement in your practice you'll have staff that will read your blogs and you can also have staff in the group I'm really interested and fascinated by the teaching learning research group can you tell me a little bit more about that and kind of how many staff are involved and what that group does yeah, so it's, I suppose it's a bit like a journal club or a book club. Um, we have about 20 staff, so it's, it's a voluntary group, so about 20 staff now that volunteer. I always advertise it at the start of the year and point out that it's a really good opportunity for staff development, etc. So it's quite popular. Um, we meet once every half term, so it's not too big of a time commitment. And in advance, I send out normally an article or a research paper that I want the group to read. So we, we don't do whole books. And that's because, as I pointed out, I think that a lot of teachers would struggle to to give the time to do that. So I tend to keep it to either one of my book summaries or a research paper instead. Um, so at the moment, we're looking at the uh, cognitive load series, the cognitive load theory the research that every teacher should know about that report but we're looking at the second one we've done that one previously and it's the second one now with examples for teaching so that kind of thing where you, it's not a whole book it's a, a kind of a short paper I normally send out a list of questions in advance I, I think that really helps to guide discussion so I'll read the paper myself first and pick out the most important points that I think we want to discuss send them out in advance I think that gives people people a lot, of, a lot of confidence that they know what's coming so they can kind of prepare some points in advance that they're um, happy to talk about and then really we meet up obviously previously it's been in person but at the moment it's on teams and we just go through the questions and people bring examples of maybe what they already do in their teaching um, and then after the meeting I produce a summary of everything that we've said so I get people to send me their good practice put it into a document and then send that out to all members and then really importantly they then take that to their next department meeting and they have a slot at their department meeting where they present the outcome of the discussion so that's really helpful because it means that it's not just those 20 staff that have turned up to the meeting that are engaging with the research but actually it's every member of staff even if it's only a brief summary or even if the person only takes one or two ideas it's kind of spreading that even further so I found that that works really well definitely I like that idea of, of even though that you're in the group and you're getting that in-depth discussion you're still bringing it back to your department so it's all it's kind of filtering through and it's almost that gentle nudges that you, yes. you get your behavioral psychology nudges <laughs> so it brings me on to to cpd how have you used CPD as an opportunity to encourage engagement in evidence-informed pedagogy? Um, well, obviously, I've, I've spoken a little bit about how we use whole school CPD to do that. So all of our whole school CPD is evidence informed. So when you are coming to a whole school CPD session, whatever we're recommending or whatever we're informing people about will be evidence informed practice. So I think that's a huge thing, first of all. Really importantly, whenever we do a whole school session, we always link that to um, departmental time. So we've, we have what I would call a tight but loose approach in our school. And I've stolen that from um, Sean, Alison and Andy Tharby's book. 
And that's kind of the approach that we go for. So we will say, we know that spatial retrieval practice is really effective and we want you to use that in your teaching and learning. And here's some ways that you could do that. But we don't specify at all that it has got to be done in a certain way. So then we give departmental time where departments will meet and they decide the best way to implement retrieval practice in their subject. Now that really helps obviously to give ownership and buy-in, but also it means that it's probably introduced more effectively. You know, an English teacher can decide much better than I can as a business studies teacher, how to introduce retrieval practice in their subject. Um, so we found that works really, really well. Um, so that's the first thing, probably whole school CPD with those that departmental time afterwards. We also do um, a lot of flexi um, inset day training, I suppose. So not it hasn't happened this year because of um, COVID-19, but normally two of our inset days every year are what we call flexi days. So staff have to accrue the hours over the year and then they can have the two days off. Um, so we normally do it in the summer holidays. So you get to break up two days earlier than, than you would do, which everyone really loves. But as the leader of CPD, I love it because it means that people have 10 hours where they, they can do their own CPD. Um, so, for example, if you read a blog and summarise it and take that to your department, well, that's an hour of your flexi time that you can accrue. Um, and you just have to tell me that you've done that essentially or if you um, go to a twilight we put on optional twilights where we engage with research so I might say right the twilight tonight is on the EEF's improving behaviour report you come along we read the report we discuss it that's an hour of your flexi time banked so it's giving teachers the time to do it but also meaning that they obviously get those days off at the end of the year as well um, and then we also have subject knowledge and pedagogy sessions, which again, I stole from Deerington High School, so can't take the credit for the idea at all. But it's the idea, again, that um, it, in order to be effective, CPD has got to be kind of departmental or subject specific. But more than that here, the focus is meant to be on subject knowledge. So a lot of the work that I do, obviously, is teaching and learning its pedagogy. But in order for any of that to make any difference, your subject knowledge has got to be really good because you can't teach something effectively if you don't actually know what you're talking about. So we have subject knowledge and pedagogy meetings um, each half term. And they can be about subject knowledge or they can be about engaging in research as well. So it might be that the English department are discussing a blog, for example, that has been um, written by an English teacher, that, that kind of thing. Right, and can we dive a little bit deeper then into that subject knowledge and pedagogy meetings? Because I'm fascinated by them and especially reading them on uh, class teaching, which is Sean Allison and Andy Tharby's blog. Um, it's great that you, that you refer reference that and, and thanks so much. What, what do they actually look like? You mentioned they're kind of, is it half term like you said? Yeah. What, do, what do they look like if you're a teacher within them? What, what's going on? So you meet every half term with your department. The focus is completely set by the department itself. So either the head of department will choose something or we've got lots of departments now where people will say, I've got this area of best practice that I would like to share. Um, and then you meet up and you could be thinking, right, we've got to teach Romeo and Juliet in English in the next couple of weeks. What's the, what's the subject knowledge that we all really need? And you just discuss the subject knowledge around that. Now, that's really useful because obviously lots of schools will have really, really experienced teachers that have got amazing knowledge. And then I'll have teachers that are new, maybe, or haven't taught a topic before and don't have that subject knowledge. So it's kind of sharing the subject knowledge between your staff. But then you'll also talk about the best way to teach topics as well. So not just, oh, this is what the students need to know, 
things like, well, what are the main misconceptions? How can we overcome them? Has anyone got a really good demonstration? All that kind of thing. So that's one possibility. Or it might be that you look at a piece of research and then as a department you discuss, well, what does this mean for our practice? How can we implement that? So I can give you some examples of kind of the, the stuff that have been done in, the, in our last meeting at school. Um, we had the science department who were looking at make every science lesson count. So one of the members of the science department had read that and summarised it and they were looking at, well, what do we need to do? And that was really nice because they say some of the stuff we know we do really, really well. And that's lovely, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That you think, oh, well, we're doing this and we're doing that. And we're doing that. We must be doing the right thing. But then also highlights, oh, yeah, but we're not actually we're not doing that. We're quite quite a long way from there. So that's really good. In the business studies department, we were looking at quantitative skills and how best to teach them to pupils. The maths department, we're looking at negative indices and um, how best to teach that. And then the English department have looked at um, whole class verbal feedback and visualizers and how they're going to use that in their subject. So a really big range. And I think that's great because it's whatever the department and the head of department feels that they would best focus on. Right, so the, the, the heads of department get that flexibility to choose the topic and then have the, all the staff. Right, such a varied um, use, um, such, such a varied, such variation from department to, to department, yes. but yeah. a lot of things that will really help drive improvements in student outcomes in, in each of them. And you could pick out um, bits from each of them that you could then take back to your own department, especially if you're listening and want to do that. Some, there's some ideas to get you started there. So thanks so much. Um, so I'm interested in learning a little bit more about your recruitment process. You mentioned this in your blog and it was really fascinating. So how does it show the importance of being evidence informed in your practice and what changes have you made to the process to allow candidates to demonstrate that they are evidence informed? Yes. Yeah, so first of all, I think it's really important that if you are an evidence informed school and that's something that you value, that you say that when you're recruiting people. Um, so our adverts now talk about being an evidence informed teacher and so does our person specification. So it talks about you are evidence informed, you've got an awareness of um, evidence informed pedagogy, etc. So it's really explicit when people are applying that this is our whole school priority and this is what we want you to focus on. Um, we allow people to demonstrate that in two ways. First of all, our interview questions ask about it now. So we say um, one of our priorities is to be evidence informed. How is your teaching and learning evidence informed? So people can kind of obviously give as many as examples as they can and then questions from that. So it, it sometimes end up as, ends up in a bit of a uh, just a chat really about who do you follow on Twitter? What books have you read? Um, what books did you, do you like best? All that kind of thing, which I love. But gives you a real insight into people, um, you know, doing the work themselves, I suppose, and really, really engaging with research. And then just this year, we've actually introduced a lesson planning task. And again, this was stolen. This is from Adam Boxer, who wrote a blog about how he was recruiting in times of um, COVID. We've actually done face to face interviews, but we've, we've kept this lesson planning task because I think it's so valuable. So basically... Before the interview, when um, you've asked the candidates to um, plan a lesson to teach that they're going to come in and teach, we also ask them to annotate that lesson plan in as much detail as they can to explain the choices that they've made. So, for example, if you're starting with a starter and it's a retrieval practice starter, you'd want them to say it's retrieval practice that will help them to embed the information into their long term memory. It's prior knowledge that's needed. So it's going to reduce cognitive load, all that kind of thing. So it's a really good insight into are they evidence informed? Or even if they're not, 
huge evidence informed have they got that that understanding that we can then build on as a school brilliant i, I love that and I, I would love to come to an interview just so i can have one of those one of those chats about who you follow and what yeah. books have you read and the yeah, deep, it's a wonderful wonderful process and can I ask you, how, 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 how do candidates find that? Do they enjoy that experience? And it must be different from what they experience in other ones. It's definitely different to some of the interviews that, that I've experienced, which has been very straight down the line in questions. So it sounds extremely fascinating. Um, I think it varies from candidate to candidate, to be honest, and it probably varies upon how evidence-informed you are. So those candidates that are evidence-informed probably really enjoy it because it's a chance to show off your knowledge isn't it and have a nice chat and then it's that whole thing as well about is the interviews aren't just trying to get the job it's trying to see if this school matches you so if you can have a really nice chat and you can think oh we've read the same books and yeah I, I use that in my teaching and that kind of thing I, I think that helps um, and then probably not so much for the candidates that struggle with a question if, if you're not evidence informed and you don't know what to say I suppose it's just a difficult question to answer. It certainly is, but it was lovely there that you mentioned that with interviews, you some, you want to know if the school's right for you and if you're right for the school, because if I suppose there, if, you, if your visions don't align, then there's no point in, in carrying on because you need your visions to align so that you can have a successful new teacher and the school can continue to support that teacher and developing and then everyone's happy. Exactly. So, um, let's move on to uh, the next area. I'm quite fascinated by this. Um, what work have you done with students and their parents in explaining the evidence-informed approaches that you have introduced in your school? Um, well, with students, I think your first point of contact is in lessons, and we've really tried to emphasise that with our staff. When we started to introduce retrieval practice, for example, really important that you explain to the kids what retrieval practice is and why you're doing it. So um, I started off by talking about, you, look, this is what memory is like. We've got a working memory, we've got a long-term memory, obviously a, a simplified approach, but trying to explain um, if you don't retrieve something from your long-term memory, you're much more likely to forget it, you'll forget it more quickly, et cetera, et cetera. So that was really important in lessons. And I think it's really important in lessons because it's subject specific. So how I do retrieval practice in my lessons will be very different to how another teacher does. So, that, so that's worked really well. We have also done lots as a, as a whole student body, I suppose. So I do assemblies with my deputy head every year at the start of the year. And the poor kids have probably seen the same assembly now three or four times, but we hammer it home to them anyway, which I think really works. And we do go through again there. This is how we learn. This is what retrieval practice is. This is what you'll be doing in your lessons. This is what you should be doing for homework. This is how you prepare for tests. So I try really to almost ban the word revision and say it's not revision because revision, we think of cramming at the end, you know, staying up all night the night before your exams. It's not that, it's spaced retrieval all the way through. So that really helps. We also give them a booklet, which basically summarizes what I say in the assembly so they can take that away. We send that booklet to parents and we say, you know, you, your kids had an assembly today. Where we've gone through this with them. Sit down and have a chat with them about it this evening and, and they'll tell you more about it. And then we do parent forums as well. So, again, this year they've been um, pre-recorded sessions, but normally we invite parents into school of an evening and we go through this is how it's best to support your child. This is These are effective practices to prepare. These are ineffective practices. Um, and that's really helped because it means that parents can support their pupils to do that, to, to prepare for revision, I suppose, or pre prepare for exams properly, which is really good. 
Yeah, I like that, how they come away with a booklet and then you're asking the parents to, to have that conversation with them. That's so powerful and helping the children embed that into their long-term memory. I love how you give it to them three times in assembly. I think I read a paper recently about the power of three by Jeffrey Carpicke. He says that we need to be um, exposed to things three times for it to really start to embed in our long-term memory. So I love how you're doing that with your assembly. So you're living and breathing this idea of mm-hmm. space retrieval. Um, so just to close us off on this interview section, it's been a wonderful exploration of, of your evidence-informed approach at, at Walton High. Um, what future improvements would you like to focus on to, to continue this journey with your school? A few things, really. So I think we're probably ready to launch some new teaching and learning priorities now. The ones that we've covered previously are, are really well embedded. So we'll be looking to do that probably from next year. We're moving more towards instructional coaching now. So it's something that we have done on a voluntary basis in the past, but that we're going to launch more heavily under the early careers framework. So I'm really excited about that. Um And then probably also looking at any other ways that we can change our CPD. So one of the things that I want to do is introduce individual CPD plans at the start of the year. So um, I suppose in lieu of a performance management meeting, you'll sit down with your line manager and you identify these are maybe the areas that I want to work on this year. And this is the CPD that I'm choosing. So I'm going to go to the uh, flexi inset training where we discuss improving behaviour. And I'm going to read this book and summarise it for our department, et cetera, et cetera. So it really lays out at the start of the year. This is my journey for CPD and for research engagement over the next 12 months. Right. Sounds so fascinating. Thanks so much for for sharing that. So that brings us to the end of of that interview. I've loved exploring your your evidence-informed approach with you, Jade. We're going to move on to the quickfire section of the podcast. These are the questions I ask every guest that are incredibly broad, but I just want the the guests to speak from the heart and what they truly believe for each one. But before we do that, can you please share with guests where they can find out a little bit more about you, perhaps signpost your blog, uh, direct them to your your Twitter account where you share so much wonderful resources with us. Thank you. So my Twitter handle is at Pierce Misses and my blog is something like that as well but I don't actually know the name of it which is awful but it's linked on my Twitter page it's a WordPress blog so if you put um, Mrs Pierce WordPress into Google I know it comes up. Brilliant thank you and I encourage people to, to follow you and just look at the wonderful work that you're sharing and to, and to read your blog especially the one we're focused on today which really succinctly discusses your, your evidence-informed approach to school. So we're now on to the quickfire round Jade are you ready? I'm ready yeah. Okay, so question number one, what makes great teaching for you? Um, I'd say evidence-informed teaching. That was a nice summary for, from today. So all of those things that we know that are going to be the best bets for teaching and learning, but that you, that has to be underpinned with positive relationships between teachers and pupils. Beautiful, wonderful way to end that, yes, including the pupils and making sure that relationships are strong. Thank you. Question number two. Uh, what one thing would you prioritise to bring about great teaching in every classroom? Uh, behaviour. I think it's a prerequisite and you can't have great teaching and learning without good behaviour. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you. And my final question to you is, if you could change just one thing in education, what would that be? That's a tough one. Um, I think it's the level of accountability that schools have from different measures like progress eight 
Um, I agree that there has to be some accountability, but I think that it can often distort curriculum, teaching and learning, resulting, you know, the awful practices of gaming and that kind of thing that we've seen in some schools over the past. Definitely. We need to we need to prioritise the things that actually improve student learning, and that definitely comes through in all the guest responses. So that brings us to the end, Jade. All that's left is to thank you so, so much for giving up your time this morning. I know that you're in school supporting um, the key worker children. So thank you so much for, for giving us that time and, and speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educate. As ever, I would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via Twitter at DNLeslie or via email. So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from so that many, many others can access Become an Educator. I'll be back next week with another episode of Become an Educated and I do hope to see you there.